Friday the 14th of May 2021 and you're listening to episode 17 of Reds Unrestricted. For the first time since 2014, Liverpool have beaten Manchester United at Old Trafford to gain control of their top four hopes. We'll discuss Trent Alexander-Arnold, Mohamed Salah, Jürgen Klopp's brave selection calls and the trip to West Brom at the start of a vital week. So Jürgen Klopp has finally completed the set, if you like. He's won at Old Trafford, ending a seven-year drought there for Liverpool. So I had a look at the game last night and and what our lineup was. And our back four was Johnson, Skertel, Agger and Flanagan. That gives you an idea of, of just how long ago it was. Uh, Dan, I'm going to come straight to you this morning with a little bit of trivia about that game. I think it's a pretty straightforward question. Um, so I'll be disappointed in you uh, if you oh, don't dear. get it. So here we go. I was going to keep it a little bit simpler and say, do you remember our scorers that day? But I'm going to make it a little bit tougher and say, do you remember the order of the goals that day? Oh, what? Um, Two Liverpool legends, Dan. I know, but the order of the goals. <laughs> Maybe that was a little um, bit much. Do your best. Let me think. Um, we go Gerard and then Suarez. I'll give you that. So obviously three 0 win, two Gerard pens, yeah. and then uh Suarez. And then Gerard again. Yeah. Gerard scored two, then Suarez scored again in the last ten minutes to, to make oh, it three 0 okay. Gerard actually missed another pen and I think he has three pens yeah. and he missed one as well. So yeah. uh yeah, sorry about that, Dan. Keep on your toes early on. Um, <laughs> I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah, you did all right, though. Did all right. Um, our guest this week is uh, Zana from Zana Talk Sports, a contributor to the Red Sky podcasts. Zana, how surprised were you that it was this season of all seasons that we actually went and won at Old Trafford? Um, I was actually quite surprised, to be fair, because. Um... Like in general, usually I'm very positive um, before the games, but this game I was just thinking with Phillips and Reese Williams at the back in our front three not really firing. I was really concerned because United have Cavani, United have Rashford, so I really thought it's going to be a bad one. And after we went um, 1-0 down, I was thinking, yeah, here we go again this season. Like everything what's been happening in the season is going to repeat again. But I was actually surprised that in a season where we were mentally quite weak, we managed to come back and come back after being a goal down and a penalty disallowed. So it was a really pleasant surprise. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I thought there was a sense from the players yesterday of what was at stake, uh, which is very pleasing to see. And also what you said about... uh, the sort of mismatch between the centre-backs. I did sort of chuckle to myself beforehand at the prospect of, of Cavani against uh, Reese williams but they they did it. They they pulled out a, a pretty mighty performance. So we'll move on to our three-word match reviews. We've not done these uh, for a while because of the, the timing of the episodes, really. But uh, hmm. Dan, I'll come to you first. What have you gone with? Mine is so simple, but in my opinion, like the only three words that really matter from last night. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold 
that was, I know we're going to touch on him, you know, in more detail in a minute, but that was single-handedly probably the best performance I've seen from him. Probably similar to the Leicester one, probably just lacked a goal last night, but I thought he was outstanding. Like, to run a game of that magnitude, because like you touched upon, it meant a lot to Liverpool last night. Like, you know, we all know football's not been the same with our fans, but where we are now in terms of getting the top four, we've got to win all our games. So to turn up and perform like that, I thought he was out of this world. Like, incredible performance. So, yeah, not our usual sort of take on the three-word match review, but Trent Alexander-Arnold just dominated that last night. Well, what I like about the three-word match review concept is that there is quite a lot of room for for creativity there. And I think I do think because of Trent's name, it was only a matter of time before, before someone went with that. Um, Zana, how did you how did you play it? My three words would be mentality, fight, and comeback. Because as I said before, I didn't expect us to show this mentality like we did in the years before, and to show us the fight we did and come back after a very good United team. So I think those are the three words which yeah highlight the game the best. Yeah, another very valid way of doing it. I think they're all. They all kind of encapsulate the, the performance. I went with um, Manchester United suffocated, uh, <laughs> which I which I think kind of sort of summed up the the way the game went for for large spells mm. really. Um, so like obviously with the the two centre backs that we had, I don't think the def- defensive vulnerability that was on show was was surprising. I mean to be fair, the defending was okay, but like you know you saw with the second goal they did they did kind of cut through it was really but. And that's going to happen when you look against mm. an attack of that quality. But as I said earlier, you know Liverpool look like a team who really appreciated what was what was up for grabs, and and it was pleasing to see the fact that it was us had that had something to play for come through so much. Um, and yeah, I think Liverpool had United on the ropes for for large spells, and it was you know really like satisfying to watch. And I think Roy Keane said after the game that Liverpool could and probably should have scored. Six or seven goals on the night, um, yeah. which I'd I'd probably agree with. To be fair, you know we had the the Jota chance, which which hit the post probably mm. stands out, and um, obviously unfortunate maybe to be uh, denied a penalty as well. And you know generally, it was extra satisfying to to get the win based on some of the scenes before the game and some of the the chanting outside Old Trafford, which uh, yeah I don't know maybe I found it a bit dispiriting. Uh, at the time, but now I it's think it's um, hypocritical the yeah, things that were yeah, going on, like, like um, especially about the songs they were singing about poverty in Liverpool and stuff, and they are protesting against their billionaire owners. That's really hypocritical, and there's they slash the tires of the bus and everything. It just it I just make me makes me think whether it's protest against their owners or they just really really dislike us so it's just, it is just hard to understand what they were trying to achieve yeah and people pointed out that there was there wasn't really an ounce of protest against um against Leicester and Roma and obviously yeah. to it to a degree the Liverpool game is the, the much bigger platform there but yeah. you know people pointed out that for example when Liverpool staged the walkout um, from Anfield, they did it against uh, against Sunderland in the ticket price process. So maybe mm-hmm. it shouldn't depend, you know, entirely on on the fixture that you have. But staying 
on the uh, on the performance for a second, Dan, if you had to sort of rank that roughly um, in our performances this season, where would you put it? Like presumably quite near the top. Yeah, there's a danger of recency bias with all these sort of things because I woke up this morning like like you touched upon before we went um, on live is like I'm probably as buzzing as I've been after a result all season for lots of reasons, but I do think that's on par with, if not slightly better than the Crystal Palace win. Obviously, you look at the Palace win, you think 7-0 away from him, like doesn't really get a lot better than that, but... From what happened since in our season, like literally capitulating, you know, we went into these final four games needing to win all four, you know, to end the Old Trafford curse, even though, as we know, it was obviously empty. And I think that's, for me, on a par with potentially slightly better than the Palace one. Because like you said, we just suffocated them. And, you know, as much as I don't think they're a great side, that their form's decent uh, and the second in the league. So they can't be a terrible team. So, yeah, for me on par with our best performance, if not the actual best one all season. I'll to disagree. I'll to disagree with that. It's um yeah, it was it, it sort of felt like it came out of the blue really, especially after um I guess the Southampton game when obviously we, we picked up the three points, but it wasn't mm. uh, it wasn't convincing at all. But we uh we rose to the occasion. Uh we'll move on to really our first sort of main discussion point and obviously Dan sort of alluded to it earlier uh, by bending the rules of the three word match review. Um, <laughs> but uh, obviously it's, it's Trent Alexander-Arnold who um, assisted Firmino's goal with the uh, free kick for half-time um, and it was his shot that Dean Henderson spilled for Firmino to score his second which I'm going to count as an assist because um, I think FPL um, counts it as an assist so we'll go with that and uh, you know it could have been more as well you know we played that that brilliant pass to Firmino right at the start of the game when uh, Firmino probably should have taken a shot and then there was the ball to Mane as well mm. when we were 3-2 up. Whether that was offside, I'm not sure. Um, we didn't really see a replay of it. It probably would have been close, but it was a it was a fantastic pass. Um, but we want to talk about Trent in a more general way, I guess. Um, so we'll do our, our end of season awards in, in, in the next week or so. But this is on kind of similar ground because I'm thinking back to that. 3-1 win against Tottenham, which was game 20 of the season, so just after the halfway point. Um, Zana, would it be fair to say that Trent has been Liverpool's best player in the in the second half of the season? Probably, yes. Um, I would still look at, yeah, maybe Fabinho, but Fabinho hasn't been that good lately, so I probably would give it to Trent Alexander-Arnold. I think he's really young and the way he composed himself after the bad results after the bad performances and all the media attention after he's been left out of the England squad I think for a young man like him that's that's really exceptional and how he just managed to get these performances in and helped the massively I think he would deserve that and Dan uh, same same question to you really you know I think uh as as Anna says, Fabinho is is certainly up there and mm. and Salah too. But you know that's probably the the leading the leading three at this point. Yeah, it probably is in terms of performances. Like you know, we've already alluded to the job Reese Williams and Nat Phillips did last night. I mean, Nat Phillips is probably a left wing contender for player of the second half of the season because 
simply because of the almost rags to riches sort of element of the story, like coming from nowhere, being called upon for some big games, um, and really not doing a lot wrong. Like for me, that was an own goal last night. In all fairness, I don't think that should be Bruno Fernandez's goal. But you know, aside from that, from not really looking like he's going to feature the start of the season, I think Nat Phillips is probably a contender with Trent. Um, but again, just based on last night, I mean, I. He has been outstanding in the second half of the season. And Zana's right to touch upon the England stuff. And, you know, everyone at that point when he got left out of the England squad kind of jumped on him and said, yeah, his form's not been great. And, you know, he's been nowhere near the player he was last season and all that kind of stuff. And that simply wasn't true at that time. He'd he'd started to turn it around already um, after being injured and obviously having COVID in the early weeks of the season. It did take him a while, you know. But that's only natural when you look back now, I think. We all expect players when they come back from injury just to be instantly as good as they've always have been, but that is very rarely the case. Um, but yeah, since like the turn of the year, you know, it's difficult to look away from Trent in terms of who has been our best player. I think him and Andy Robertson kind of swapped roles. I think Robertson was the best up until Christmas, um, and then since Robertson has been, he's been good but he's been nowhere near the sort of levels that he'd reached beforehand, whereas Trent has just kicked on completely. So if we can get them two playing somewhere near the best together, like they have done in recent seasons, then we'll be laughing. Yeah, that could be one of the the many ways for Liverpool to sort of rediscover their, their absolute best in, in a kind of sustained spell, really. Um, but I agree, I agree with what you're saying. And I think, you know, there's no point pretending that Trent's been... Of the level that he, he was at in 18, 19, and 1920. He's not been far off that recently, like, but over the course of the, the full season. Uh, but even still, you know, you look at the the stats for sort of chances created per game, and he's in he's in the top ten in the league. So I think last mm. season he probably would have been top five, but you know, that's if that's what's gonna be a, a bad or average season for Trent over the course of his career, then I think we'll we'll all kind of take that and we we're seeing evidence as well that of how fired up Trent is. Um, there's been plenty of like instances of it. I think he's really channeled that um, England that England snub into into motivation, whether that's mm. to you know prove Southgate wrong or whether he's just playing desperately for his place in that squad. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to like uh, when he pulled out that assist against Arsenal. I remember the the screen that he let out um, after yeah. that cross into Jota and. Last night, the winner as well. Yeah, and uh, and and last night he, I saw that he liked he liked the tweet of that um Sky Sports um Sky Sports graphic that uh, showed that he was sort of top of all those various Liverpool, Liverpool ranks as well. So I think he feels that he's he's not been getting the the credit he deserves, and clearly he's someone who who pays attention to the the kind of media analysis around him, but. Um, and we've all agreed that he's been he's been hugely impressive recently, and what a player he's he's going to be for the next, you know, ten fifteen years at Liverpool. It's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a pleasure to watch, and hopefully we're all ready to enjoy it. But staying uh, with a similar player in that respect, uh, we're going to move on to talk about um, Mo Salah. And Dan, I know this is something that that you want to talk about because we saw it on uh, Monday night that um, Carragher and Neville who we, we can all probably agree are the two most influential uh, pundits, really. So their, their opinions kind of worth dwelling on, I suppose. Mm. They did their team of the seasons on Monday Night Football and they both uh, left most Salah out of it. 
Um, this is obviously despite the fact that yesterday he he went on to pull level with uh, with Harry Kane uh, in the Golden Boot race, and you know people would argue that in terms of his value to the side that Liverpool only have a chance of salvaging something from the season because of him. So, do you think the performance level that he's put up this season hasn't been fully appreciated, maybe outside of outside of Liverpool? One hundred percent for me. Um... I've seen a few people say it now. He's a victim of his own, of his own success, um, obviously individually and probably the team because you know ever since he's arrived, really, like he obviously had that ridiculous goal scoring season first season, and then since like team accolades have come, um, and this season obviously there hasn't been the team accolades and he hasn't scored, you know, thirty two goals in a league season. So people have just kind of shied away from from praising him now, which is just wrong because they're happy to praise. You know, Harry Kane, Bruno Fernandes, you know, Hung Ming Son, people like that who are putting up very similar numbers to Mo Salah and Salah just kind of goes about it without really getting plaudits from outside the Liverpool fans. Like, we all appreciate him. But, like, that Monday night football awards just kind of epitomised what I'd always thought was happening with him, really, to be honest, and that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Um, like you say, you know, they probably shouldn't do, but their two opinions kind of resonate throughout the football world. Like we've seen that with the Super League stuff, um, and we've seen it with the awards, and we've seen it with Trent when he got dropped. Like, you know, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher's opinion was being taken as gospel, really, on why he'd been dropped, which is certainly, from the Neville perspective, not something I particularly agree with. Um, but that's the way it is at the minute. So for them two to leave Salah out was probably quite a big statement and like I say the football world more widely just kind of says oh yeah that's because he's not been very good but that's just not true like you know he's joint top in the Premier League race like you say for goal scoring and Liverpool have been relatively poor this season compared to what we have been and um, Harry Kane's an out and out goal scorer so I don't think he's ever really going to dip below that um, Sal is a winger essentially I mean we all know he offers a lot more than that in terms of you know, getting down through the middle and obviously scoring goals. But his all-round performances, I still think, have been very good compared to the squad as a whole. Like, you just got to look at Manny on the other side, who we all love, um, but he's been nowhere near his level this season, whereas Salah has. So I don't think he's been fully appreciated outside of Liverpool um, at all. Um, but as for the actual, you know, the teams they named, you look at the players who've got in instead of them, um, I mean, Rashford got in Neville's team. <laughs> a lot of time for Marcus Rashford, obviously what he's done outside of football, but that can't translate automatically into <laughs> being named in sort of team of the years because he hasn't been that good. Um, so there was definitely some bias in that selection. I think I think he had five United players in there. Um, and like I say, one of them was Rashford over Salah, which whether you look at stats or whether you just look at all the performances just isn't true. So for me, it's been going on a while, but this week just highlighted the fact that Salah really is underappreciated. I think with these team of the seasons, like if you're doing it on a sort of maybe strictly positional kind of basis, so if you had a front three and you're saying, right, I need a right winger, a striker and a left winger, then you literally can't look past Salah uh, for mm. that right wing slot. Um Maybe if you're doing it a bit a bit more loosely and you're just throwing three strikers in those positions, then it's kind of more excusable because there has been some some strikers who've had exceptional seasons for you know teams who 
aren't as well equipped um, as Liverpool, even even with the injuries that we've had. So um, I guess it depends on that. I think, you know, Son has a claim to have had as good a season, I guess, based on the goal involvements. Rashford, I wouldn't say, wouldn't say does. Um, it, I mean, the argument could be made. Um, it's probably, it's a bit too hip of an argument, I think, because of, uh, you know, what he achieved in, in 17-18. But you could say that it's his most impressive season for us in the sense that the team's almost been decimated and the team's kind of unravelled. But he's, he sort of stayed at, at the level yeah. that he's been at. Um, and um, I think he's, he brought up 30 goals yesterday, which I think I'm right in saying means it's like, like his highest tally um, maybe since that 17-18 uh, season um, in all compositions, which is extra impressive. So I'll bring you in on it, uh, Zana, about sort of Salah's performance levels this season and whether he's getting the credit he, he deserves. I think he definitely doesn't. And I speak about it quite a lot. Like, yeah, my favourite player in the team is Mane. But then at the same time, I think Salah is really, really underappreciated. The things he's been doing from the second he joined the club, they're outstanding. Like every, almost every year he gets over 20 goals. So it's just, I just don't understand why there is this, I would even call it, disrespect because he is so so good and also talking about that uh, team of the season I think it was especially hypocritical from Jamie Carragher to leave him out because after he published the team and it was talked about on uh, Monday Night Football he said that he left out Salah and basically put Son in front of him because he has more penalties. But then at the same mm. time, he puts in, um, in the midfield, he puts uh, Bruno Fernandes, who has way more penalties. So mm. I, I think there's so such a huge disrespect. And it's even coming from people who are associated with Liverpool, like Jamie Carragher and even our own fans. There are some who don't appreciate him. And it, it makes me quite angry because it is not fair because when people talk about Kane and Rashford and all the other uh, strikers, they they put way more respect on their name and say how good they are. And they very rarely mention Salah, even though his numbers are sometimes even better than Kane's. Mm. So I just don't understand and I don't get where is it coming from. Yeah, and I guess you have to wonder if it's it's almost just what more could he have done this season? I think maybe the only thing that you can kind of look back on is essentially that Real Madrid second leg where yeah, he was guilty of, of quite a big mess, but you know, certainly mm. certainly in the Premier League, like I don't think we, we could really have asked any more from Salah. Um and obviously last night um he went on to uh, to seal the three points. Um another very memorable Mohamed Salah moment like because of the, the feeling of relief and uh, because of the sort of the celebration as well. Um, it, it was mm-hmm. absolutely great. But uh, let's think about Salah's feature. I saw a lot of the phrase, give him whatever he wants um, on uh, on social media yesterday. Um, we know he's about to enter the last two years of his contract. It seems like Liverpool 
there's kind of a bit of connecting dots going on here, but it seems like Liverpool are reluctant to sit down and get it sorted at the moment because Salah potentially wants a, a contract that'll put them in line with some of like the global megastars. Um, but Liverpool are hesitant about giving a massive long-term deal given obviously they have this wage structure in place and the fact that Salah's getting uh, close to 30. Um, we'll turn 30 next year, I think. Would you be, Dan, of the given what everybody wants school of thought? Um, it's very easy to say, isn't it, on the face of it, but when you dig a little bit deeper into the way Liverpool operate, and they're not likely to give anyone whatever they want, if, we, if we're brutally honest. Certainly not when it comes to... I mean, if he was 22, then yeah, give him whatever he wants. But like you say, he's got to turn 30 next year. And as much as you know, we've just raved about he's still producing, he's still doing this, it's just not likely that Liverpool tying down to a six-year contract for whatever figure he sees fit. Um, listen, we need to sign him down to a new contract. He needs to stay. There's absolutely no two ways about that. I just think it's unrealistic to think that Liverpool, Michael Edwards walks in with an open checkbook and just says, yeah, go on, crack on sort of thing. I just don't see that happening. Um, we have been very good at tying our star players down to new deals. Like I think Fabinho and and Virgil van Dijk are kind of in the process of doing it now, and a couple more big names. Probably the one that slipped through the net would probably be Wijnaldum. Obviously, it looks like he's going to go this summer on a free, which will sting a little bit with the club, I think. Um, they won't want to see anybody who probably still holds a value like Wijnaldum does leave for free, but that's the way it's going to be by the looks of it. But in terms of Salah, um, it's pretty much a crunch summer, really, in a way, because... You'd imagine if we were ever thinking of selling, it would be this summer. This is probably the one where we'd get the most return on him. Um, but at the same time, you know, time down to a new contract, in my opinion. Um, but it's got to be something realistic and in line with what Liverpool do. He probably should be the highest earned player. There's probably no no two ways about that, but it's still got to be realistic. We're not going to be doing sort of Kylian Mbappe level deals, I don't think. Interesting. Um, Zana, would you... Would you agree with what with what Dan's saying there in terms of would you be willing to um, sort of compromise the club's like wage structure really if it meant ensuring that we could tie Salah down? I am not sure that I totally agree. I think we should be trying as much as we can and maybe a bit more to keep him at our club because the way he's been performing from the first game when he arrived, I think he will go out as a Liverpool legend. So we have to respect that. But then at the same time, we also have to respect like the wage structure we have. So maybe there can be some compromises. And I agree that we shouldn't be giving him like a contract like Mbappe, for example, because yeah, he is going to turn 30 next year. So there has to be a compromise and we have to try our best to keep him at the club and make sure that he and maybe Van Dijk and Fabinho are the priorities of the club. So we definitely have to try and maybe we have to step out of our comfort zone a bit to get it achieved. Yeah, there's an interesting kind of setup really because Liverpool have obviously got these principles that have helped get them to the top and you think, you know, we, we've got here because of them, let's stick by them, but there are, mm. there are plenty of occasions where those principles are kind of tested, really. And I think we saw that to an extent with the Thiago transfer last summer. Not the kind of deal Liverpool would normally do, but too good an opportunity to turn down. Yeah. Just to 
briefly throw my opinion in on this. Like, I think this this idea that once a player turns thirty, they'll start to decline is becoming a bit outdated, really. Um, and this is it's kind of the frame of mind I've been in. I think partly because I've been playing career mode for so many years, but um, you know, <laughs> these players uh, are like phenomenal athletes these days. And what's interesting is uh, you both mentioned it. I don't think Liverpool will hesitate to tie Van Dijk down. He's about to turn 30 and is coming back from obviously a pretty horrific mm. injury, really. Um, and so Salah for me is like a player you can pretty much guarantee is going to get 25 or more for like another four years, really. And that to have that kind of that's almost certainty around them is pretty invaluable. So obviously we can't like dismiss that weight structure that we have. You know, it's easy to do that, as you said, Dan. But like um, on balance, I think I'd say that tying down a player of Salah's calibre caliber almost merits the, the consequences of doing that, if you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say, just like to finish off, like this is all specu- speculation. Two and a bit years is still quite a long time, to be fair. And it might end up being sorted without too much fuss, ultimately. Um, but let's sort of wrap up our post-United uh, element of the podcast by talking briefly about the decisions Klopp made last night. So, He's taken some criticism recently, a lot of it revolving around Thiago in terms of leaving him out against Real Madrid and then taking him off against Newcastle after he'd really controlled that game. Um, And we discussed whether, from a managerial perspective, he's sort of underperformed over the course of the season. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Last night, I think there were two big decisions. Obviously, the biggest is playing Reese Williams to keep Fabinho in midfield. Um, And he also made what he said was a late decision to drop Sadio Mane, who'd scored two in his last three, for Diogo Jota, who I think was having a slightly trickier spell um, in the, of the season before uh, last night. So for me, both of those calls paid off. Um, Zander, I'll come to you first. Do you think Klopp absolutely nailed it yesterday? I think he did. And me saying it as a huge Mane fan, it might hmm. hurt me a bit, but I think he definitely did. I think... It was very brave of him to put Reese Williams in the center back and not Fabinho, but I think it, it really paid back and it just showed we kept winning the ball high up because mostly because of Fabinho. And Reese Williams had a really good game to be fair. Like we were all talking about Phillips about his own goal, but then like he did a lot of good things. But Reese Williams, I think you didn't see him that much but that's I think a really good thing for a center back and Cavani couldn't do anything really like I didn't see the Cavani we usually see yesterday so I think that decision was spot on it was risky it could go wrong it went wrong in the FA Cup game for example but this time it didn't and he had to take the risks because we need Fabinho in midfield we we struggle to win games when he is not there so a really good decision. Um, regarding Mane, I was a bit surprised maybe because, as you said, he has scored two games in his uh, last three. But at the end of the day, it's Klopp who sees them in training. It's Klopp who sees actually the whole picture. So I completely trust Klopp on this. And I think it was disrespectful the way, the way Mane acted after the game. But... I think it's just emotions and everything will be fine and probably he will start the next game. So I think those decisions were spot on. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, 
Mane incidents actually because obviously you've said you're quite a big uh, Mane fan and um, as as you say I, I think probably by the time he, he's woken up this morning it's it's something that he'll have put behind him and a lot of people are saying yeah. you know it's good sure. to see it's good to see a player almost show that level of of desire and and frustration not to be able to get a chance to to show what they've got early and uh, Dan will sort of come to you on this about sort of how how well Klopp did yesterday with those with those brave decisions. Yeah, they definitely were brave. I think Zana summed it up really well, to be honest with you. Like I all the points I'd like to make, she really did nail them. Um I think the Manny incident, just to touch on that before I go into it, was I like to see that sort of thing, I must admit. I, I like the show of desire and like a little bit of anger at not being you know, included from the start, certainly from a player like Mane. And I forced it between Mane and Salah the whole time. I just think the two elite professionals who want to score goals, who want to win for the team, and I don't really have a problem with it. I think, you know, it's a little bit disrespectful to Klopp, but Klopp, he knows Mane well. Mane knows Klopp well. They'll sort that out. It's no big deal. But as for the selection, um, I mean, Fabinho midfield, we've spoken about that enough. Um our defence was always going to get exposed at some point during 90 minutes last night. I think we had to reduce the amount of times that happened. And the best way of doing that was for being in your midfield. Like you said earlier, Dave, we suffocated them. We didn't let them get at our back four, which was absolutely crucial. So as it turned out, he absolutely nailed it, in my opinion. Playing Reese williams was the lesser of two evils for me. Because I think if we play Fabinho at the back, we don't have as much of the ball. And that creates a problem in itself. Um, as for Mane and Jota in terms of selection, it shocked me because I did expect I expected the usual front three, if you like, to play. Um, and Jota hasn't been great. But like like Zana touched upon, really, you know, we don't know how they've trained for the past few days. You know, Jota hasn't been in great form in terms of matches, but he might have been absolutely on fire in training, and Mane might have just been dipping below. So. It's a difficult one, but it's a fair call. I think Firmino is still a shoo-in in them big games. I think the control he gives us, and he drops back into midfield to help out as well. I think that sort of added extras to his game make him still a must-pick in big matches, despite you know the problems he's had. So yeah, I think you know it sounds mad to say because if you said twelve months ago we didn't play Sadio Mane, yet Jurgen Klopp nailed it, we'd have probably laughed, but he absolutely nailed it last night. I think it's spot on there, Dan, and the point about uh, about Fabinho and Williams, like as as you say, it is about sort of taking the defensive pain that we will take at some point during the game and almost accepting that, but having that platform to just go and score more than them um, is kind of. I mean, I don't think the approach is quite that all guns blazing, but that's kind of the uh, the sort of reward you're getting um, for playing Fabinho there and. Obviously, we've we've been praising Klopp a lot in this section, but um, it has been argued that maybe if he'd placed trust in Phillips earlier in the season, um, when uh, other centre halves were available, when he was playing like you know Henderson next to Kabak, uh, for example, if he'd done it earlier in the season, maybe he'd be in a stronger position now. Um, but I think. We won't dwell on that too much because yesterday was a victory for for club from a coaching perspective. So for the final section of the podcast, as usual, we'll look ahead to our next game, which is up against relegated West Brom. Obviously, Liverpool now in a position 
to go and get top four if they're able to win their three games. Let's just quickly run through the permutations. Um, a lot of this hinges, obviously, on the fact that Leicester and Chelsea play each other um, next midweek, I think it is, after they meet in the uh, in the FA Cup final. So I think I've calculated this right. So if Leicester uh, were to win against Chelsea, their max points would be 72. Chelsea's would be 67. Uh, if Chelsea were to win, Chelsea's max points would be 70 and Leicester's 69. That's probably the outcome we don't want from that game, I'd say. Mm. Um, draw in that game uh, puts Leicester on 70 and Chelsea on 68 as a maximum. Obviously, our maximum point tally is is uh, 69. And Leicester's goal difference is one better at the moment. But obviously, if we beat West Brom in our game in hand this weekend, we'd be level or ahead. So let's think about how Klopp should line up before we talk about the, the game in the context of the season, really. Um Dan, I'll go to you first. What's your selection? Yeah, um, exactly the same back five as last night because I'm just assuming um, Kabak still wouldn't be ready and available. Um, obviously, it's quite a short turnaround between now and the game. So, Allison, Trent, Phillips, Williams and Robertson. Um, I don't think it's the time to be... I mean, previously we spoke about maybe Tamikas coming in, but, you know, three cup finals left essentially, haven't we? So... Same back five. Um, I've gone with Fabinho, Thiago and Curtis Jones in midfield. I think Fabinho and Thiago are pretty much shoe-ins for the last three games as well. I think they're crucial with where we're at at the minute. Um, when Alan did well last night, but I think a bit more energy from Curtis Jones when he came on could be quite important against West Brom because I don't quite know how they're going to set up. Like Normally, you'd say sit back, make it difficult, etc., etc. But they're already relegated, so who knows? Um, and as a front three, I've gone Salah, Firmino and Mane back in. Um, could easily be Jota instead of Firmino, to be honest. Um, but I've just gone for quite a straight swap in terms of Mane for Jota. Um, Salah, similar to the ones I've mentioned previously, is an absolute shoo-in. Um, one, because he's going for the golden boot, obviously, but that goal for, like we've seen in our tight games recently, like the goal against Newcastle, you know, you can just make something happen out of nothing and we just need to win our last three. So, yeah, that would be me. I think you could argue that rotation should be kept to something of a minimum Um, when the, that running's kind of this high stakes. It's like, yeah, you can play what you think is your best team for the mm. next three games and in terms of whether West Brom will throw caution to the wind, I think I think that's a little bit naive, Dan. Um, just in terms of like, I know they're already relegated, but they they were still they want to win the game, and the best way to win the game is obviously to try and you know frustrate Liverpool and maybe get like a, a set piece goal as we saw in the reverse fixture. Um, and obviously it was I think it was Jones who who made the mistake um, mm. to lead, which led to that corner for the goal. Um, but uh, he's not really been involved too much recently, so maybe he is he is kind of due uh, a game. I could see the arguments. Um, uh, Zana, how how similar is your team to, to what Dan went with? Um, I would change the formation probably, so it looks a bit different since we've been struggling with the low block teams. So I would still keep back five the same as well because I don't know what's going on with Quebec's injury. Um, then I would put Fab and Thiago in midfield. 
and have a front four of Manisala, Bobby and Jota. I think the game when we played this kind of formation, we did quite well. So we can definitely try that. And when we play 4-3-3, we quite struggle with teams like West Brom and it just shows in the results we've had against uh, bottom six teams. So I think I would try something like this. You know what? I think that's quite a good choice, actually, in terms of we know roughly how the game's going to go and you want maybe to have that extra attacker in there. Um, in terms of my team, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think I'd say unchanged from last night if it's still the case that Carback's not fit, um, in which case, obviously, if he was, he'd, he'd come in for Reese Williams. I just want to say, like, the, the timing of this Carback injury, like, to have the injuries you've had this season at centre-back is one thing, but then to, to strike up this ragtag partnership between Kabak and Phillips and for it to prove quite effective and then to lose that at a crucial stage of the season, it's just, I can't believe it. And, you know, obviously we lost Phillips a couple of weeks ago and um, you could argue that losing him, obviously we conceded a corner against Leeds. Maybe we needed that no-nonsense approach against... Um, Newcastle in the final minutes. Like, I do think if we were to miss out on top four, that's something I'd point to in terms of these injuries just really never stopped. Um, and to get it in training as well, I think maybe some questions have to be have to be asked um, come the end of the season. Um, yeah, I think Mane, whether I would do this, I'm not sure, um, based on how well we played last night. Uh, but I do think Mane will but come back into the team, I think that's that's kind of inevitable given the short turnaround. And, you know, obviously when you have a player of his quality who has not really played that many minutes on a Thursday, then the likelihood is he's going to come in for the Sunday games. That's what I'd expect to see him coming in for. Probably for uh, for Jossa, actually. I've got a feeling for me, you know, might, um, I might be misguided in this, but I've got a feeling he might figure quite heavily in terms of Klopp going with really the players that he trusts. And I think that's why Wijnaldum might play more maybe than we than we expect as in these final sort of few games of Liverpool career really um, mm. at the expense of maybe players like Jones. Uh, but let's let's move on to our, our score predictions. Um I'm assuming and hoping that we've all we've all got a fairly comfortable victories here. Um Zana, what's yours? I would say two nil or three nil. Yeah, I've gone for two nil as well. Um I'm a little hesitant about the idea that they have nothing to play for, um, which will be the phrase that's getting sort of banded about. Like, yes, they've been relegated, but we always see players raise their game against us. Um, and there'll be players who are there trying to secure Premier League football and in terms of getting that transfer in the summer. Um, the goalkeeper, for example, will probably have an absolute world mm-hmm. the other game. Um, you know, so there is that kind of motivation there and that's obviously quite significant for their careers. You know, in terms of the other points that make you a little bit nervous about it, like the reverse fixture was the one that started our downfall um, after Christmas. Um, Sam Allardyce ruined Christmas. <laughs> um, but, uh, but let's face it, like they are a poor, poor team um, and Liverpool looked like a team last night who recognised what was at stake. So I think we'll... Uh, We'll get the win, um, 2 0, as I said. Looking at sort of the last few fixtures, like 
I think it's the Burnley game that's going to be the horrible one. You know, Tuesday night, turf more. Um, I know that's a, that's like a massive cliche, but it just you just instinctively like expect something bad to happen when you hear when you hear that combination. And obviously, it's going to be in front of uh, fans as well. So Burnley, yeah. that they're kind of you know obviously they're safe and could you know potentially be on the beach if you like, but. They've been they've been on that in front of supporters for the first time in in more than a year. Uh, if we can get through that, you know, maybe with remember when uh, we went there in I think January twenty eighteen, it would have been and I think Lovren and Clavan might have scored Clavin. or something. Yeah, yeah, I think if Phillips can come up with a Clavan Clavan moment, <laughs> <laughs> it might be that kind of game. Um, but if we can get to Palace, knowing that a win in front of ten thousand fans will get us over the line for top four, then. I'll be I'll be supremely confident. Uh, really, probably the most confident I've been been all season. Uh, speaking of supreme confidence, Dan, um, what's your not only your prediction but your outlook really on these these last three fixtures now? Yeah, um, Sunday I do think we'll win. I think we'll win quite comfortably, to be honest. I think I I, I get what you're saying in terms of West Brom. We're going to win. Want to win this game and Sam Allardyce. He's going to set up quite negatively just for a change. But I don't know. I think there will be a little bit more, not caution to the wind, but a bit more relaxation from them because their season is done. Like It's got to be difficult at that stage to get fully motivated for a match. Um, I think it'd be different when we go to Burnley with the fans in place. I think that will change things. But as for Sunday, yeah, I think we win quite comfortably. I'd probably say 3-0, possibly even 4-0, um, which would be a nice boost to the goal difference. Um, just based on last night, we looked really like we'd finally realised the magnitude of what was going on for the first time in a long time, to be honest, last night. I think the Leeds and Newcastle game kind of showed a bit of lethargy and we didn't really look like we'd grasp the situation, but last night there was none of that. So, yeah, I'm really confident for the weekend. Um, Burnley's going to be properly difficult, I think, for all the reasons you mentioned, but... I still think we've got enough to win it. I don't think it'd be easy. I'd take... A Ragnar Clavan slash Nat Phillips back post header to win it right now. I'd bite your hand off. So that'd be the tough one. As for Palace at home, like they are probably the definition of playing for nothing. I think they're about 13th. You know, Roy Hodgson, like he'll be fully on the beach, I hope, by that point. And 10,000 in Anfield, then we win that game. I just think the sticking point could be that Burnley one. So we get through them too, and, and it's all ours for the taking. Yeah, the way it's been going, you think like almost Liverpool won't win at the weekend, and then we'll think, oh god, we've we've blew it, and then the result will go our way on Tuesday, and we'll be like, oh no, we can <laughs> we can get back in. We just need Leicester not to beat Tottenham and all that, all that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, hopefully, obviously, top four would be I think uh, acceptable, and certainly in the circumstances, a very satisfying end to the season and a, a relieving one as well in terms of the. You know, obviously the fight, the financial boost, and the maybe the club's uh, recruitment power in the summer window as well. But that's pretty much uh, all we've got time for uh, in this episode. Uh, before we go, Zana, I'll give you the opportunity to sort of plug, advertise any any work or anything you've got going on that you'd like people to to have a look at. Yeah, thank you. So you can find me on Twitter and YouTube. So I do mostly um, Liverpool related content. Sometimes I do 
uh, stuff about other teams as well, but it's heavily Liverpool uh, related and you can find me as Zane Talks Sports. So if you're interested, subscribe, follow me and I have a couple of interesting partnerships coming up in the future. So just keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> yeah, and we'll put your um, Twitter details in the episode description as well so people can find them quite easily. Uh, thanks for coming on this morning. I think you did get quite a good hand with the result that we had last night. <laughs> you know, we've had people coming on straight after defeats against Fulham and stuff, but this was a uh, a slightly more positive occasion. Um, so we'll be back um, at the end of next week to hopefully reflect on two victories against West Brom and Burnley and look ahead to the a season top four finale um, at Anfield in front of fans against Crystal Palace. And if all goes to plan, we'll be doing our end of season awards in that episode so it should be um, quite a good listen um, but for now uh, that's all we've got time for and we'll see you then This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts.